Uh, we are studying the life, part of the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah in preparation for next Sunday night. Next Sunday night at 6 o'clock right here, all of our church choirs, the children's choir, youth choir, adult choir, along with the symphony orchestra will be presenting Elijah, the Felix Mendelssohn a choral presentation. So you'll want to attend that and you'll have a little background on Elijah before you get here and then the dramatic presentation uh, in music. Direct your attention to the Word of God to the probably the most well-known story and episode in the life of Elijah the prophet. In 1 Kings 18 it's recorded and there's a lot of detail that's been going before. We're going to skip a little bit and there's some that comes after. But I want you to notice a couple of things as I read the narrative. Notice how many times it says, all the people, all the people. And then also pay attention especially to the actual direct quotations from the mouth of Elijah the prophet as we read through the narrative. We'll begin there in 18 and about verse 17. When King Ahab saw Elijah the prophet, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now Ahab's wife Jezebel has had hundreds of the prophets of God killed within the last fortnight. And Elijah is the troubler of Israel? That's just an aside. And he answered and said, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. The false prophets, the pagan prophets, were supported by the state, by the government. They have sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer Him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left of the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And then they did all that. We skipped down there to uh, verse 29. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, as great as contained two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And he said, 
fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. He said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your words. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. That's a good way to end the reading of the Word of the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, this is a real crisis in Israel. We reviewed last week a little bit of the story of how the northern kingdom had split off about 75 to 100 years earlier. And King Jeroboam I had realized that if the people in the northern kingdom, ten tribes would go down to Jerusalem to the Jew to the southern kingdom and worship that they would be problems, that they would have loyalty to the king as they went down to Jerusalem to worship. So he set up two golden calves. He set up a golden calf in Bethel, which was a sacred place. That's where Jacob himself had built an altar to the Lord and worshiped. And he built a place in the north, way up in the north, in Dan, the town of Dan, gave him two golden calves. In fact, that's really the primary representation of Canaanite religion. Canaanite religion was represented by the golden calf or the, or the young bull. In fact, it was the same religion that was practiced by Aaron, the brother of Moses, the high priest of the people before he became high priest at Mount Sinai. You remember the story there when Moses came down, he heard a great noise. Fantastic worship service. If you like high decibel levels in worship service, you would have loved that service. If you like a lot of excitement in a service, you would have loved that service. If you like music and dancing and all sorts of other things in a worship service, you would have loved it at the foot of Sinai around the golden calf. And that religion always had its draw, always had its appeal to God's people. Because it was the religion of the land. It was the religion of the majority. It was the religion that was in vogue and accepted in all of Canaan. Here came Israel with their little backpacks packing across the desert and coming to this land that God gave them. And they brought with them a strange God, a jealous God, a God that claimed to be the true God, the only God, a God that wanted them to be His people exclusively, a God who had told them to come out from there and be separate from the people, a God who had given volume after volume of prophetic witness from Moses about the holiness of God, that God is holy and separate and different and high and lifted up and apart from His people. And He says, be holy for I am holy. And this was the greatest crisis so far in the life of Israel because the people in the northern kingdom had forsaken 
their God. And they had gone to worship the Baal, led that way by their apostate king. And enhanced at this point in the third generation of this particular dynasty by King Ahab, who had married a woman, Jezebel, who was the princess, the daughter of the king of Tyre. Now Tyre and Israel had always enjoyed a good relationship. It was Hiram, the king of Tyre, that helped build the temple and get the material together for David and Solomon. And they had always had a good close political relationship, but now it had moved into a, a marriage. And it wasn't just a marriage of convenience, it was a marriage of conviction. Ahab took Jezebel because he not only liked her, but he liked her religion. And she brought the worst of the Canaanite religion. The religion of Tyre was a fertility cult. It emphasized prosperity. It worshipped nature. It had as its highest value reproduction. Its symbol was a young bull, a golden calf. Its worship was basically sensual, ritual prostitution. And its abominations went all the way to child sacrifice. The religion of Canaan, the worship of the Baal. The word Baal means a husband, but it means a, a master, a possessor. Isn't that what false religion is? Doesn't it want to possess us, take us over, enslave us in bondage that will lead us in a life of sensuality and materialism and naturalism and take us to a destination where we don't want to end up? And because of that, Israel always had a little bit of reluctance. They're like, well, we love this Canaanite religion. It sort of, it sort of suits us. It's our style. It, it, it speaks to us. I get a lot out of that worship service. That worship service means when I go to that worship service, I'm moved. I'm stimulated. I'm gratified. I love that religion. But they had these words of Moses in their ears and they had their history and they had their ethnicity and they would think of Abraham. And so they were like, well, but I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to bring the worship of Jehovah and just give it a sophisticated understanding so broad and so tolerant and so sophisticated that it can include this sensual religion, this naturalistic, materialistic religion with it. It would have the perfect religion. It's all inclusive. It's ecumenical to the, to the furthest extent. The perfect religion is syncretism between the worship of the true God, the God of heaven and earth, the God who brings salvation, the God who deals with our souls and rescues us time and again when we need it. We can call on Him when we're in desperate. But when things are going good, we love this wonderful worship service and the ethics that go with it. As I've just indicated, Canaan religion was anti-supernatural. It was naturalistic. There was no transcendence. It was materialistic. It was rooted in the earth, in the crops, in wealth, in what they could pull out of the earth, in how they could prosper. It was a religion that was temporal. It emphasized life here and now. Religion needs to be practical. It needs to speak to me on Monday morning. It needs to be something I do something with and enjoy, and it, it meets me where I am. That's the felt need of the people. And so... This was the perfect religion for them because it was very much time-bound. In fact, it was bound into the seasons of the year. The Lord had ordered His worship service around a seven-day order with a holy day as a Sabbath. Natural religion follows the seasons, the changing, its nature. 
It celebrates the spring. It celebrates the summer and the fall and the harvest and all of these things. And really, it never ends. The seasons come, the seasons go. It's a cycle. And that's how they reckoned time. It was a cycle. It never ended and it never was going to end. It was just perpetual, perpetual. Whereas God's timetable has always been set out in a linear motion. There's a creation and there's a consummation. There's a beginning and there's an end. There's an alpha and omega. And it makes it purposeful because creation has a purpose to it. And all those things that happen between the creation dawn and the morning of the trumpet sound at the end, there's a lot of meaningful things take place in terms of loving the Lord, obeying the Lord, following the Lord, building the Lord's kingdom, living for the Lord, glorifying the Lord. A lot of things take place in the middle. It's a purposeful religion, but not Baal. It was also a scientific religion. It was obsessed with nature. It worshipped the creation and the creature rather than the creator. And as I mentioned, and I don't want to belabor this point, but you have no idea how sensual and sexual this religion was. In, in fact, I can't even describe it to you. I remember when they described it to me in seminary, I was a grown man, and I was just about horrified. Do they do that? Why do they do that? Why do they have these prostitutes in the temple? What's going on here? What are they doing? It was for the gratification of the flesh. It was pure pleasure. And here comes the prophet of God, trembling. He had been hiding for two and a half years. And he had already commanded the heavens to be shut up. There was no rain. What does that do to your crops? What does that do to your fertility cult? What does that do? The God of rain has now been silenced. And just like Moses, Elijah had this miracle over the land. It affected the land and this, pro this prophet Elijah goes to meet King Ahab because the Lord ordered him to. And Ahab was in the prophet slaughtering business. And the story we didn't read, there was even a man of God, a good man, Obadiah, that served King Ahab. And they had a, a rendezvous. And Ahab was fearful to go because he felt like he would have to give a uh, Elijah up to Ahab to be slaughtered by Jezebel's executioners. It used to cost something in the old days to be a prophet. I don't know that it cost us these days to be a prophet. That makes me wonder if we're really prophets. This was a crisis in Israel. Time and again, God had to do this to His people. You remember Moses on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy 30. It had to call the people back and told them, they need to serve the Lord. He says, I set before you life and death. That's how important it is. The word crisis means a separation. And it also means a point of turning. This is both. This is going to be a separation. It's going to separate God's people from the worshipers of Baal, the worshipers of the false gods. It's going to separate. But it's also going to be a turning point. Not only Moses, but Joshua had to bring God's people back. You remember there in Shechem? He gathered the people around and said, Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We'll start with a majority of one. God plus 
me and my family. And that's really kind of where serving the Lord starts. You make your declaration, you swear your allegiance, you vow to Him, and then you bring those along with whom you are closest and that you have the most influence on and that you can bring to the Lord. Samuel, we, just a few weeks back, we remember at Mizpah, Samuel had to bring God's people back to a point of crisis, a point of decision when they faced the Philistines. And now here it is again. So Ahab knows he's being challenged and Elijah makes the challenge. The only thing that Elijah's going on is the sheer, mere word of the Lord. The only thing Elijah's got going for him is faith in God. Doesn't have an army, doesn't have a kingdom. In a way, he's on foreign soil. He's been hiding out for two and a half years. Guess, guess where he was hiding out, by the way? He was hiding out in, in Sidon, <laughs> which of course was the heart place of this Canaanite religion. Tyre and Sidon, those two towns, the Phoenician towns that were up there in the northernmost part near Galilee where Jesus grew up. Elijah had just about this much of the Phoenician Canaanite religion. And now they have this confrontation. And you know the story, I won't tell the story. And we read quite a bit of the details of it. And really what it amounts to is that they brought this crisis to a point. And Elijah commands the prophets of Baal to come up. And here's the test. It's a simple test. We're going to go to Mount Carmel, which is way up there in the north, not too far down the seashore from Tyre itself. And we're going to have a worship service. And we're going to offer a sacrifice. And it's going to be a burnt offering. But we're not going to bring any matches or any lighters or any lighter fluid or charcoal, or anything else. We're going to let God provide the fire. And you prepare your sacrifice upon your altars, and you do your worship service. And it's described in the, in the, in the uh, portion that we missed. And you call upon your God, and He'll bring fire. Or not. And I'll do the same thing, and I'll call upon my God. And the part that Mark pointed out was very... Good point. When he said this, how long will you go limping between two opinions? For if the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer Him a word. That's because when a question like that is put to you, to say anything at all, to ask a question, to wonder out loud, to make a statement, is to commit is to show your bias, is to show your heart. And these people didn't want to let Elijah know that where their heart was. And that's really the whole issue in religion. This test is going to tell us who the true God is. And some of you may be thinking, well, Ron, this happened almost 3,000 years ago in this little tiny place way off in the Middle East with all these old pagans who were ignorant and backward and didn't know this and didn't know that and these little tiny of group of, of, um, of Israelites. And, and what does this have to do? It happened 2,900 years ago. You've had plenty of time to think about it. 
and to decide in your heart whether the Lord is God or whether the false gods of naturalism, humanism, materialism are your gods. You've got a lot of lead time. These poor people had the question put to them kind of quickly. But you've had your whole lifetime and 2,900 years of history to reckon in your soul. It's still God. He hasn't changed. God is the same today as He was on that mountain of Carmel. Now, I wish I had time to go into Carmel or Carmel. It's a beautiful mountain. It's a mountain range. It overlooks the Mediterranean Sea. It goes up to about 1,800 feet. And then there's a place there where scholars think this happened. There's a, there's a peak that goes 200 feet up. And then the slope goes down where literally thousands and thousands of people could meet and could, could observe. And remember, he called all the people. All Israel came out. This was a, a gigantic ceremony that was going to witness. And you know the story and you know what happened. The prophets of Baal made their offering and they called upon their God and nothing happened. And they went from, earth, from the middle of the morning till noon. And then during that time, Elijah began to taunt them. And he said, well, you know, uh, cry a little louder. Maybe your God's sleeping. And then a little later on, he came up. I said, well, maybe he's on a vacation. He's on a journey. Well, maybe your God's meditating. Maybe he's thinking. Maybe he's pondering. Maybe he's deciding what he's going to do. Or maybe he's just gone to the bathroom. Yeah, that's what he said. He taunted them. So that's not very sophisticated for the prophet to taunt like that. Bible says God sits in His glory and taunts and scoffs at the wicked and the atheist and the false gods. God is not to be fooled around with. He is God then, He's God now. And then you know the story of what happened. And it's one of the saddest verses in Scripture. No one answered Verse 29, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. That's a sad religion to have, isn't it? You call upon your God and you get no voice. There's no voice of comfort, there's no commandment, there's no revelation, there's no light, there's no speaking at all. Your God just He's on vacation, or he's on the toilet. There's no call. He doesn't call you to himself. He doesn't call you back. He doesn't call, call you in the night and, and comfort you. And there's just no voice. said, no one answered. Don't you want a God that hears and answers prayer? And it says, no one paid attention. No one paid attention. Baal didn't pay attention. Baal didn't care. He didn't care if they lived or died. He didn't care. And all of these things that Moses taunted him with were things that human beings have in common. They meditate. They take vacations. They go to the restroom. They sleep. And that's really all that Baal religion amounts to. is human religion. In the final analysis, all you've got is you and yourself. There's no deity. There's no power. There's no eternality. There's no holiness. There's no righteousness. 
There's no vinger of the truth. There's no truth. There's no life, really. All that the prophets of Baal have been able to do is take what God gave in His common grace, bringing the rain upon the just and the unjust, and they just took it and consumed it and forgot God. And they called upon Baal. There was no voice. Well, quickly, to finish up, Elijah then called the people near. He did a couple of things. He repaired the altar that had been torn down. Now, that just blesses my heart. That meant at one time... In Israel's history, there was a, uh, an altar to the true God on several hills. We read about them all through the, the Old Testament, but especially here on Mount Carmel. There had been true worship of the Lord in that mountain, but it had been torn down. Sometimes that happens in our lives, doesn't it? There's been true worship of the Lord, but it's fallen into disrepair. We've gotten cold, backslidden, indifferent kind of moved away from the Lord, kind of looked around and said, I don't know that the Lord has anything to do with this. I make good money, but I pretty well work hard for it. And all the things we rationalize that these are not from the hand of the Lord, but they're our doing, they're our own generation. And we have gendered this up. It is our fertility and our creativity that has made us blessed like we are. And we forget God. And that's what had happened in Israel. But Elijah called the people and he slowly, all afternoon he works on this. He builds the altar back and he does it using 12 stones. 12 stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you read your Bible very far, you'll find the 12 tribes of Israel. That represents the church. That's the New Testament emphasis and you can't get away from it when we get to the end. The book of Revelation just simply says the 12 tribes of Israel is the bride of Christ, the wife of Jehovah, the body of believers. And so he rebuilds the church. He rebuilds the people of God symbolically in these stones. Then he puts the, the, the um, calf on it, and I'm going to say one thing. By the time he got ready to offer this sacrifice, the sun was setting. The sun was setting all the way down over the Mediterranean. And it was just about dark, because the oblation service is an evening sacrifice. And then Elijah calls upon the Lord. And just to be brief about it, let me just point out here, he says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are Lord and God and that you have turned their hearts back. And as he prayed, fire fell from heaven. He had already told them to pour all this water around. There was a spring up there in the mountains, by the way, not far from there, still there, that they had brought the water in because it had been a drought. The, the, the brooks were dry. The rivers were, were low, low, low level. But they had put all this water in, in to keep from having any kind of magic, any kind of ignition point down below and under the sacrifice, and any kind of sneaky tricks, which the false prophets are always good at. They live by deception. Elijah wanted it to know this is the real deal. This is a true manifestation of God. And the fire, the, the Bible says that when God speaks, his mouth is like fire. So whereas Baal had given no answer, the Lord answers. It's like that old spiritual said, up on the mountain, when my Lord spoke, from his mouth came fire and smoke. And that's what happened. God spoke. He answered. There was a voice. There was an answer. There was someone that cared. There was someone that heard. There was someone that answered. The true God. 
And when he spoke, that fire came down and blasted the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and everything around it. Same thing happened, by the way, back in Leviticus chapter 9 when fire came down upon the altar with, with Moses, and it was the true fire. In the very next chapter in the book of Leviticus, Aaron's two sons try to create false fire. They try to make their own religion again, and God strikes them dead. God is not one to be messed with. It is a true God who demands in his, from His people their whole heart and their whole loyalty. The Bible says all the people saw it and they fell on their faces and they said, simple, simple statements. The Lord, He is God. And if you had witnessed that scene that day, that night when the fire fell, you would have done the same thing they did. You would have repeated it. The Lord, He is God. One more thing. Uh, when the people confessed their faith in the Lord and came back to Him, the Lord had turned them back and the crisis had turned them back to Himself. And He had demonstrated His power and demonstrated His truthfulness. Elijah had the people with him and he took the prophets of Baal, all 450 of them, and he slaughtered them. If you think that's harsh, you haven't read your Bible. Two whole chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, not chapters 13 and 17, are dedicated to the notion that the true God will not tolerate a rival. And anybody, anywhere, anytime that leads a child away from the true God, there's a death penalty for that crime. Better for, Jesus said, a millstone be put around your neck and you cast into the sea than to lead one of these little ones astray. There's a God in the church. This is the church of the living God. We are the direct heirs of Elijah and Israel from those days. The true witness of God carried from the old covenant into the new covenant and into the face, the glorious face of Jesus Christ, bringing us the fullness of all of God's promise. If you would walk off Mount Carmel and take a nice stroll down that slope and go about 28 miles, you'll get to the town of Nazareth where there was a young man working in his father's carpenter shop preparing to be the next Elijah. And before he finished his ministry, he stood on the mountain with both Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration. If you want to come to the true God, you come the way Elijah is leading you, the way Moses is leading you, and that is through Christ Jesus. Not Mohammed, not Buddha, not any other name on earth you can name. But the name of Jesus, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved.